Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. Welcome. This is On the Ball on the United WeCast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, you can hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young-onset Parkinson's called Rebound. If you know someone with Parkinson's or you know nothing about Parkinson's, you will want to read Brian's story. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader, audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's Foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily, but not exclusively, involving the NBA. And that is here. So there are two topics I want to hit in this episode. Game 2 of the NBA Finals, specifically the performance of Giannis Antetokounmpo, and what prevented his effort from being a winning one. I assure you, the latter won't be what you're hearing elsewhere, based on the post-game questions I heard being posed uh, after the game by the attending media, and some of the post-game Twitter slander I saw being thrown around on my social media feed. But before we get to who let the Bucks down and how, I want to talk about what Giannis did. As anybody who has followed my work for a while knows, I don't get all that excited about pretty box scores and losing causes. If there's anything that bothers me, uh, or bothered me when I was working with Bleacher Report, and still bothers me now, even when I'm not, is showing highlights and getting all hyped, going bananas over a electric play by someone in a losing effort. It's just, you couldn't find one from somebody who won the game. And, it, and it's, it's okay to have those highlights. It's just have them advertised as if as if they were the deciding factor when they were a sidelight to the actual outcome. Bottom line is when it comes to numbers and big plays, if you're a star, 
you're supposed to fill the box score. What truly matters is whether or not they're winning numbers, which means you got them at the right time in the right way. Well, Giannis Antetokounmpo did that. He got them at the right time, certainly in the right way. He just didn't get enough of them for the way the Bucks were playing. What makes this game stand out for me is that it is the first time I've seen Giannis use his size and versatility to impose his will on a consistent basis. Even to the point of demanding the ball from his teammates. Now, I don't want to be a I told you so, but go back and look at where he operated from in game two, almost exclusively, which was from below the free throw line. He either caught it there in the mid post, or even when he started above the free throw line, he didn't try to straight line drive and then spin back right as is so often the case, but he would dribble to the mid post or elbow and then turn and back his way into the paint or within range of taking a step back, which he took repeatedly with confidence and made them. For a guy his size, it's the best way to protect the ball, to three-quarter your way to where you want to get to, especially when the other team is playing small. There's just too many hands below your waist that can swipe at the ball and tip it away, and that's their number one goal because they know once you get the ball above your shoulders, chances are they can't do anything about it when they're playing small. He also fought to get a shot attempt, attempt even when there was no chance of actually getting the ball up just in order to get to the free throw line. That is invaluable. That is not something that he consistently did before. You could see it. He didn't want to necessarily get to the free throw line. I got the sense that in this game, he was inviting those fouls, inviting that opportunity to get there. Now, he only shot 61%, but he took 18 free throws, and most of his misses had a chance. I don't know who got to him, but his pre-shot routine had a faster cadence, resulting in the crowd looking kind of silly, counting in unison, and the ball going up and in 11 times by the time they reached a 7 or 8 count, well short of 10. And I just have felt all along that his whole rhythm and cadence and routine was just too elongated. The... The muscle memory, you want to turn off the head and rely on your mechanics in taking a shot like that. The longer you go, the more you have to think about, the more chances there's something can go awry. DeAndre Ayton, Jay Crowder, and Devin Booker, by the way, all had four fouls, courtesy of Giannis and his aggression. If he gets someone anyone to join him in being aggressive and I'm looking at you Chris Middleton the Suns would have had some serious foul trouble and 
if Tory Craig's knee is more than a contusion and causes him to miss time, the Suns' advantage in depth takes another big hit with Dario Saric going down in Game 1 with a torn ACL. But back to Giannis. Between his offensive rebounding and decision-making on when and how to attack, this was as good of an offensive game as I've seen from him. The barking at his teammates in the huddle was icing on the cake. I believe that was in the third quarter. A year ago, Giannis wouldn't have been capable of that, in part because some of the other personalities on the team, in part because we're watching him realize his potential in real time. He is worthy of demanding more from his teammates. Somebody has to on this team. Budenholzer, Coach Mike Budenholzer, clearly is not going to do that. Drew Holiday doesn't have that kind of personality. Chris Middleton doesn't have that kind of personality. Brooke Lopez, kind of, but is just a little too goofy for it to really carry and resonate. So there is nobody else. He's the one that has to do it. And sometimes it takes a player a while to realize that he has the ability and the standing to do that, to use that license. And I also don't think that what we saw was for the cameras. There are other guys I know who do that, but I don't think there's a contrived bone in Giannis's body. I don't think he was conscious of the camera being there. I think he wanted to make a point and was passionate about it. There are games where a player gets a better understanding of just what he's capable of. And that game raises the bar on what he expects for himself on a nightly basis going forward. Or understands what he's capable of. And understands that it's greater than maybe he gave himself credit for up until that point. Giannis scored time and again on mid-range jumpers on the biggest stage there is. And it wasn't as if he was forced into taking them by the clock or couldn't do anything else. It was, he was looking to take them because he was confident that he could make them. And he was doing it against, if I'm not mistaken, Jay Crowder a good part of the time, who is a very good defender. He also resolutely, as I said, drew fouls and walked to the free throw line and outside of an early air ball, looked confident and comfortable there. I believe game two will serve as that kind of game for Giannis. The bar being raised game. I don't know if Giannis will win a championship this year, but I'm now confident, more confident than ever, that he will win one at some point in his career. Now, to who and what let Giannis down? Based on the post-game questions and Twitter hate, there seems to be this notion that the Bucks lost because Middleton only scored 11 points and Drew Holiday went 7 for 21 from the floor for 17 points. I understand the Twitter trolls taking a simplistic approach sitting on their couch, watching the game, watching Drew Holiday miss layups, or Chris Middleton turn the ball over, 
and thinking, oh, well, they just didn't do it at the offensive end. I get where someone just watching the game and not analyzing the game comes to that conclusion. But it truly frightens me that writers in attendance with monitors that provide a living box score, along with some experience I would assume in seeing NBA teams play and knowing how to dissect the meaning of team stats and what they're watching, would one, know that the game was not lost by Milwaukee on offense, and two, feel completely uh, uncomfortable asking a question about their offense in the post-game press conference for all the world to hear. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The game was lost at the other end of the floor, particularly defending the three, where the Suns made 20 of 40. The Suns shot 40 three-pointers and did it at a 50% clip. That's eight more threes than the Suns have averaged in the playoffs so far this season. And it's about 14% higher in percentage than they've shot overall in this postseason. The Bucks average 109 points a game in the playoffs. They scored 108. They average shooting 45-46%. They shot 45%. Their offense was not the problem. Their defense was. Now, if anyone asked about the Bucks' defense or their defense in particular at the three-point line, I missed it. But it's really the only question that needed to be asked. As much as free throw shooting tilted the scales and decided game one, the Suns' ball movement, we got to give them credit, and the Bucks' inability to close out and run them off the three-point line is what decided game two. Coach Mike Budenholzer took my advice as far as defending Chris Paul with Drew Holiday rather than P.J. Tucker, though he did give me a little scare on the game's first possession when, for some reason, Tucker ended up matched up on Paul. But by Phoenix's second possession, things were set right and Holiday was on him, and he did a decent job on limiting Paul's playmaking. Paul had eight assists, but he also had six turnovers to go with his 23 points. And if you watched the game, you saw how getting into the offense was far more difficult for the Suns overall with Holiday picking him up 94 feet and doing a tremendous job of fighting over screens. Made a little adjustment with how the bigs played it, but for the most part, that was Holiday's work. And as I suspected, Paul turned the playmaking duties over to Booker far more than he did when Tucker guarded him in Game 1. That strategy might have worked better had Middleton given a better effort. Simple 
as that. If you're wondering why Macau Bridges had a career playoff high 27 points, look no further than Middleton, who was assigned to him for most of the game. There was also one play where he defended Booker on a pull-up jumper on the baseline, contested it well enough to get Booker to miss the 11-foot attempt, but then apparently thought his work was done and watched as Booker just stepped forward, grabbed the rebound, and scored on a 9-foot putback. This was late in the third quarter as the Bucks tried to whittle down the Suns' lead to single digits. Middleton just showed no understanding of what was necessary at both ends during that stretch. They had cut the Phoenix lead to seven, and Middleton comes down and takes a contested three on the break that misses and turns into a Booker three at the other end. Ten-point lead restored, momentum shifted. Giannis answers out of the timeout, which the Bucks had to take because they'd just taken a gut punch. And Giannis answers with a mid-range jumper. But then Middleton gave up the putback by Booker. Middleton's lack of aggression and physicality showed up at the other end as well, where for the second game in a row, he failed to get to the free throw line, failed to take a single free throw. I'm sorry, but when you're the supposed go-to guy on a team in the finals, not finding a way to draw a shooting foul or getting there in the bonus with Giannis practically getting you there all by himself is unconscionable. The Suns committed their fourth foul in the third quarter with nearly six and a half minutes left. They didn't get into the bonus until there was three minutes left. And Middleton didn't get into the bonus at all. So if you're looking for culprits, start with Middleton, who had the worst defensive rating among the starters overall, followed closely by Jeff Jeff Teague off the bench. Which, I'll get back to Teague, but this brings me to the next main culprit, and that's Budenholzer. Why he played P.J. Tucker the same 35 minutes he gave him in Game 1 is a mystery. In those 35 minutes, Tucker had one defensive rebound. Thankfully, Coach Bud played Brooke Lopez a few more minutes than he did in Game 1, but he went the wrong direction on Bobby Portis, playing him less than five. I have no idea what Portis did to get mothballed, but it wasn't what he did on the court. I rewatched his stretch to see if he blew a defensive rotation or did something egregious on offense or said something on his way by the bench, whatever, nothing. He was his usual active self, scored on a putback, matched Tucker's defensive rebounding total despite playing 30 fewer minutes, and came off the floor after diving off it trying to save a loose ball. Whatever issues the Bucks had when Portis was on the floor, they weren't of his making. The most damaging quarter for the Bucks was the second, when they were outscored 30-16. to 16. And guess who played the most minutes? Ten and a half. And had the worst plus-minus with a minus 12. That's right. P.J. Tucker. The 36-year-old played 10 and a half straight minutes and produced one offensive rebound, one missed shot, one assist, two fouls, and zero points. The only player who was worse in that quarter was Middleton, who also went scoreless despite five shots 
and finished with a plus-minus for the period of minus 14. I've expressed my view of Teague many times before, which is why I kind of saved him for the end. I don't trust him with the ball, which is not a good feeling when someone is a point guard. I'm guessing Coach Bud played him in order to keep Tucker off of Paul when Holiday needed a breather, but it didn't work. Teague finished with the worst defensive rating for any buck in the game. And I have to ask, how does any point guard play 12 minutes and not register a single assist? Finally, I saw that Bucks legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has Milwaukee winning in six. I'm pretty sure that was his prediction prior to game two, and I'm pretty sure knowing Kareem that he's going to stick with it anyway. I actually don't think that's as crazy as it sounds, even now. This is not taking anything away from the Suns. They've played well. They've been coached well. They deserved both wins, no question. I just don't know how much better they can play while I'm still waiting for the Bucks to show me anything close to their best, other than glimpses, like at the start of the first quarter and again in the third of Game 2. But those glimpses pose questions the Suns don't have answers for if the Bucks simply give the multiple defensive efforts an extended effort overall that I saw at the end of the Atlanta series. Will we see it? Will we see it in Milwaukee? That was the turning point for them, certainly, in previous series. So we'll see if that plays the same again here. In any case, we have the weekend. We have one game over the weekend. And we don't have any podcasts until next Monday when we will break down that game three that all-important Game 3 on Sunday in Milwaukee. Uh, Thank you, all of you, for rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify as well. But uh, thank you, because we had a huge bump in the number of ratings. I appreciate it. You guys listen. You really do listen to me. In any case, uh, we will rejoin here next week for a breakdown of Game 3 of the NBA Finals. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.